You're listening to Homicide Worldwide. Your hosts, Sally and Keto, would like to remind our listeners the episodes deal with crimes that are graphic in nature and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Tonight's guest needs no introduction. He is a man whose reputation precedes him, and anyone of just about any age who is presently alive knows who he was. We all know his crimes, but most of us do not know much about the human behind the crimes. We know what we think we know, but there is so, so much more than just the rape, the cannibalism, and the necrophilia. For some of us out there, it's easier to cope with the knowledge that things like this happened and then become disgusted. It is easier to shut out the details of these crimes and reduce Jeffrey Dahmer down to one word, evil. Perhaps his story was unavoidable. Maybe he was born this way. Or, perhaps, had any attention been paid to the subtleties that are now so glaring over 40 years later, it could have been avoided altogether. But if he had been noticed at all, steered or mentored correctly, he may have had a chance to turn his propensity for the macabre experiments as an adult into something extraordinary instead of the devastation for so many people. One thing is certain, things were missed along the way with the mild-mannered, shy, introverted, and often soft-spoken child version of Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer. His existence and his crimes, if nothing else, will serve as a cautionary tale to keep a closer eye on our kids as they are developing, and maybe as a reminder to be more vigilant when something is just a little off with your neighbor, or to look deeper if your coworker seems to be just the right amount of quiet and unremarkable. Mainstream serial killers are not to be the focus here at Homicide Worldwide, but we don't aim to bring you the information that you already know from the media or Wikipedia about these guys and gals. When we talk about cases such as these, we want to get into who they were, what made them tick, were they created or were they born this way? Why did they do what they did when there are so many people out there who had suffered just as much as kids and turned out to be just fine. With these cases, it's not just the murder and the gore, but the inner struggles as human beings. And as such, how we can learn from them and how we can best avoid creating them in the future. Because nobody likes to get murdered. Whatever your interpretation on these types is, we hope that you take something new away from this evening. This is episode 17 of Homicide Worldwide. co-host Kita, and I am your co-host Sally and we are so excited that you're back with us tonight at Homicide Worldwide. How nice to be here with you our Dahmer themed evening. Our Dahmer themed evening episode 17 for the 17 victims of Jeffrey Dahmer. Wow I didn't realize that until right now. (laughs) You're welcome world. (laughs) everybody needed to know and now they do yes yes um yeah it was sort of strange the way that worked out but here we are 
Ready to, ready to talk about the man, the myth, the legend. The legend, Jeffrey Dahmer. Yes. So as Ted Bundy is to me, so Jeffrey Dahmer is to you. Is he your number one in terms of just general fascination? I would say yes, in terms of general fascination. Why is that? I don't know how to narrow that down to just one answer. Jeffrey Dahmer is just so, he's so multifaceted in the way he was brought up in the way he wasn't abused physically at home. He didn't grow up impoverished. But to me, he was so just closed off from everything and how he could just remove himself from what he was doing because he just, he didn't want to be alone. It all stemmed from a very lonely place for him. He just intrigues me so much that way. He is intriguing, isn't he? Like, I didn't expect to be as intrigued as I am, and I kept coming back to feeling sorry for him. Even though I know a lot of people are going to be like, what the fuck? I know. Just but when you, you hear are, it. We are also multifaceted humans, all right? <laughs> it's not a weird thing for me that I can feel disgust at what he did. Yes. And horror for the family. Yes. And fascination at why anybody would do this crazy shit. Right. And compassion for him as a broken human. Like Exactly. I am a complicated person and I can store all those things in my brain simultaneously without any conflict. I know you can too. You can like hold these seemingly contradictory thoughts in your mind. Yeah. Like I can feel compassion for someone as broken as he got. Right. Like I'm not a Richard Ramirez groupie where I'm going to be like, Ew. I want to marry you because you're so hot and I don't care about your it's the teeth. <laughs> look. I do look at him as a person and kind of like the cumulative sum of his upbringing into his adulthood and and how he just sort of was invisible in a lot mm -hmm. of ways and all the things that he was going to do in the future were sort of indicated along the way. And, really and there wasn't any one person who stopped to take the time to notice and if they did, they ignored it. You know, and that's down to his parents, too, where, you know, they were so self-involved, both of them, that they didn't, you know, according to his mother, she just kind of was like, I never noticed the signs. And it's so multidimensional, I feel like it's uh, he's just a very fascinating character to me. And I feel that there's a lot of sadness that his life had around it even before the murders. I feel the same way. Yeah. And I liked in your intro that you touched on the fact that it's very reductionist to say that he is evil. I did a little video watching of various interviews with him, blah, blah, blah. And I always find it to be lazy journalism when mm -hmm. the journalists are like, his evil acts. I'm like, okay, so if he was, I mean, he did disgusting things and he killed people, yes. If he were evil, truly evil, he had plenty of opportunity to inflict horrible torture yeah. on animals, on people. Killing was an unpleasant thing for him. I'm not defending him. The guy deserved to rot because he did horrible things to yeah. people. But let's take a wider view of humanity and say humans are incredibly complicated creatures. Yes. With anything that's extremely complicated, when things go wrong, they go really, really, really wrong. And there is so much involved with this in terms of it's emotional for him. It's uh, psychological for him. It's primal for him. There is so much mm -hmm. that went into these murders and these crimes that he committed that mm -hmm. came from a multitude of places. You can't just be a reductionist and screw it down to say, oh, he was just an evil person. He was a shitty person, but it came from somewhere. And thinking about it, too, in terms of, I don't want to imagine what it's like to be Jeffrey Dahmer. I think that's a horrible experience. But when you yourself 
in your own life are particularly, you know, we've all been through periods where we're particularly drawn or obsessed or fascinated about something. You can kind of turn that on and off. It keeps coming back into your mind, but there's other times where you're talking about, you know, your family, you're talking about work, or you're talking about this or that. For him, he described this, he was thinking about it all the time. It was constant for him. It never Mm -hmm. left him. Like, who is that? Katie Lang, Constant Craving, that song. Constant Craving, (laughs) That was literally, that was his theme song in this life. Sorry, Katie Lang. Um, (laughs) Don't be mad at me, girl. You know, it never left him. That's gonna be a horrible experience. Even though he did these things, he's a prisoner in his own mind. This is getting really far ahead of it. You know, even after everything was out and he, you know, had admitted to his crimes, he said he still had these feelings from time mm-hmm. to time while he was in prison. This isn't yep. something that he could just turn on or off. It was literally like on the most physiological level, just mm-hmm. a, a part of him. Or even just who he was. Yeah, more accurately. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much where I'm at with Jeffrey Dahmer. Well, let's talk a little Jeffrey Dahmer childhood. So, um, <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer was born May 21, 1960, first baby in the family. A very difficult pregnancy for Mother Joyce. By the way, who I found out was often and preferred to be known as Rocky. Rocky Flint. I just found that out today. I'm going to call her Joyce, but in my mind, she's a, there's a little Rocky now. Rocky was actually her father's name. Yep, there, I have a little story for that a little bit later on. But yes, you're right. She did. She had a a difficult pregnancy. It was rumored that she had copious amounts of drugs injected into her. You know, barbitol. (laughs) Hardcore barbiturate, like, calm you down. Pretty sure that's not... seizures. Yeah, pretty sure that's not something that you give to a pregnant woman. It really shouldn't be. There was also morphine involved. I thought. Yes, there was morphine, and this was all, for the most part, when she would be acting, quote-unquote, hysterical. Lionel was often a very cold husband, and Mm -hmm. she was often described as being overly emotional, volatile, irrational, like, you name it. I think she, at the end of it, I think she was just really trying to get his attention. (laughs) I get the impression that that's kind of her currency, her currency that she responds to is attention. Like when you're looking at me, you love me, I feel loved. And so she would do things to get Lionel's attention. And that is only going to escalate over time. It really is. When she was pregnant with Jeffrey, that's, that's what was going down. And so when she had Jeffrey, I had read something that said that she didn't breastfeed. This is just my personal opinion. I don't think that that makes or breaks a mother. I think it's more important that your child is held and comforted when they need to be comforted. And if the alternative is formula feeding or not feeding, formula feed. Nobody's going to grow up to be a meth addict because they were formula fed. There's going to be a lot of other reasons they grow up to be. <laughs> exactly. I think it's important to take a quick step back here, though, before we get into how she was as a mother with Jeffrey, how she kind of grew up with her own family. Her parents were Floyd Flint, but he went by Rocky for some reason. I'm not sure. Rocky Flint is a fantastic name. Well, he was Irish, so I would expect nothing less from an Irishman to be fucking Rocky Flint. That sounds pretty awesome. (laughs) And her mother's name was Lillian Randberg. She described her mother as a Norwegian housewife, and that was pretty much the extent of the description about her mother that I could find. (laughs) Joyce had said that Floyd was an alcoholic and that he was physically abusive with both she and her mother. 
She did have two siblings, and I didn't really find much out about whether or not he was physically abusive with them. I think that her siblings were brothers. So I don't know if it was because she was a girl and it was different. And of course, this was a much different time. She says that he was always ready to go for sex. And so if his wife was in the middle of doing something, uh, the dishes, vacuuming, because she's a housewife, remember, like Norwegian housewife, right? So she'd only be cooking, cleaning, or having sex with her husband. Apparently, no matter what she was in the middle of doing, she would essentially always kind of have to stop so that little Joyce could take over her task of whether it was vacuuming or whatever, so that her mom could go and take care of her husband. Wow. It was a very sexually charged relationship. This is what Joyce saw. So I think that that sort of plays into a little bit later, you know, in the way Jeffrey Dahmer turned out, because all of his crimes, as we know, were very motivated by sex. Floyd was also abusive with her in the sense that he once hit her so hard that he struck her head against a, a window and it broke the window when she was Jeez. young. So it, he was real heavy handed with his daughter mm-hmm. and she didn't really have the best role model in terms of you know, her father. He did a lot of abusing, a lot of hurting. It was said that he sexually abused her. I don't know if that's fact or not. It was in there as well. Given the time, given his propensity to be an abuser, totally possible. If it did happen? Eventually, Lillian actually mustered up the courage, this Norwegian housewife mustered up the courage and divorced his ass. Joyce kind of always looked to her mom like she was a pillar of strength because of that, you know, she'd gotten herself out of this like really bad marriage filled with abuse and just went for it on her own. So that was kind of a little bit about Joyce's childhood. And this is also Mm -hmm. a time when, you know, girls were not exactly groomed to be the strong, resilient, like stand up on your own, do it, you know, it's like they kind of were, you know, meant to get married and have babies and just, you know, sit there and be silent and pretty. Mm -hmm. And she was, she was a very beautiful woman. She actually had not seen her father for about 15 or 16 years. He ended up with a terminal disease. I I think it was cancer. He was dying, and so she went to go and visit him. And at this point, she was already married to Lionel. And she said that when she saw her father and saw him dying, that is when she realized that her marriage was about as dead as her father was. Her words. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that gnarly? To the point. Yeah. Anyhow, at at some point during the marriage, she had gotten a job and had started to hyphenate her name. Mm -hmm. So instead of just being Joyce Dahmer, she was starting to use Flint Dahmer and kind of felt like it was a little bit of a rebellion against Lionel. And then as time went on, she actually started to identify herself as Rocky Flint, her father's name. Fascinating. Isn't that crazy? So anyway, um, that was just a little bit about her. In terms of her being a mother to Jeffrey, I think that there was a lot of postpartum depression. And it was a time, 1960, where things like that were not well understood at all. There wasn't the treatment protocols. They weren't the good drugs. And the drugs they did have were very strong. Very strong. So, And they were massively overprescribed, too. Your doctor still smoke in the Mm -hmm. office like this isn't a time where they were really overly concerned about health so you know to inject her with all of these things to keep her calm to keep her in line i think so to speak because she was acting in a certain way it's not surprising that maybe while in utero that jeffrey dahmer may have had a little bit of you know misfiring happening as he was developing chemical misfiring (laughs) exactly that yeah 
I think you have to take every single one of these things and look at it as a possible contributing factor. The in utero environment is so important and there's a lot of evidence about the in utero environment and the mother's emotional state with regards to the child's future emotional equilibrium or ability to regulate. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff linked to, to things that happen with regards to just how the mother is feeling during her pregnancy and Joyce wasn't feeling great. She was having a lot of not just physical symptoms like these seizures and stuff that she was having, but also like a significant emotional symptoms as well. Yeah. I always thought that it was very interesting as I was reading through this that when she and Lionel got married, it was August of 1959, but mm. Jeffrey Dahmer was born in May of 1960, which is exactly nine months. So he was probably conceived out of wedlock. Or like they got lucky that first night if they were shooting for making a baby. Wow. So it's a very, I just thought that it was a very strange timing, how it could just magically be exactly nine months. It was almost nine months to the day. day. Yeah. I did hear at one point in an interview that Joyce described Lionel to a neighbor as in bed voracious. Oh, oh God. Sorry, but apparently Lionel just couldn't get enough. Really? Yeah. He's... I know. I would never have guessed. Sorry, I'm sorry, but there it is. Yeah. Not because uh, he's quiet and subdued. Like, quiet, subdued people can be animals between the sheets, but because he's so <laughs> reserved. Yeah, he's got to um, let it out somewhere. Yeah, that's right. Well, speaking of Lionel, let's have a little Lionel time. Lionel had a similar pattern in his childhood as some of the psychological stuff that Jeffrey had. And I think it's worth spending a little time on it. So, you know, if you have an obsessive parent, sometimes you can be an obsessive child. And Jeffrey Dahmer had an obsessive parent. Lionel, by his own admission, he wrote a book called A Father's Story. And he detailed in a surprising amount of candidness, all of the things that happened in his own childhood and Jeffrey's yeah. childhood as he remembers and of course everyone's going to paint themselves in a better light and he does this too but he is also I think fairly candid so he talked about his own Lionel's own fascination with fire and that uh, later turned into a very strong fascination with bombs mm-hmm. and I can see how that could go bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that could lead to arson. That could lead to, you know, hurting people or destroying property with bombs. That could lead to, uh, you know, a lot of things. But he rem- he specifically called it an obsession. And when he found out about, like, later down the road, when he was trying to make sense of all this, make sense of Jeffrey's actions, when he found out about Jeffrey's obsessive interest with finding dead animals and dissecting them it really rang true for him that childhood obsession because he had felt just the same way and i i don't think he felt necessarily guilty for that yeah but i know he felt not in not a kinship but just a recognition that that he might have inadvertently passed something along yeah he was very concerned that his little murder fantasy that he had had along the way too mm-hmm. he was very concerned that that is something that while he was able to sort of control those feelings, that those mm-hmm. feelings were passed along to his son. Isn't that fascinating? But to even say that, it's so damning an admission Yeah, um, that you had these feelings too, even like homicidal feelings. It's very intense. Lionel Dahmer also suffered from intense shyness as a child, just the way Jeffrey did. And I think that 
because he knew himself to be so shy and reserved, I think it was a lot easier for him to normalize Jeffrey's debilitating shyness in his own mind and be like, this is just like me. I was a shy child too. I'm not going to demonize him for being shy. I was shy as well. Yeah. So like there's nothing wrong with being shy. There's nothing wrong with being shy. I'm not going to blame my son. I was shy, you know, through his own experience, it valid, it it, it was validated. Right. But for him, he, Lionel, he talked about uh, this sort of like fear of the social world and even buildings. He was like afraid of going into or near buildings because people were in them. This is something that that Lionel talked about with regards to his experience of social life. And Jeffrey kind of talks about himself the same way of not really understanding the sort of give and take of social life. And this is what he said. This is Lionel. The subtleties of social life were beyond my grasp. When children liked me, I did not know why, nor could I formulate a plan for winning their affection. I simply didn't know how things worked with other people. There seemed to be a certain randomness and unpredictability in their attitudes and actions. And try as I might, I couldn't make other people seem less strange and unknowable. Because of that, the social world seemed vague and threatening. And as a boy, I approached it with a great lack of confidence, even dread. What Lionel ended up doing though, was kind of directing his fears into a very strong, interesting chemistry. And so he really pushed himself and and drove himself in this direction to kind of get over some of his social fears, to kind of give himself a reason to push forward in his life. And that gave him, of course, a livelihood, gave him some self-esteem. He did very well Um, for himself as a chemist. It was the exact right position for somebody like Lionel Dahmer. As a scientist's mind works, like when you're child is interested in scientific things Mm -hmm. and you already identify with your son in that Mm -hmm. he was shy he was kind of socially awkward just like you now he's got an interest in science you don't anatomy i can see how that wouldn't necessarily send up a red flag yeah the alarm bells aren't ringing no because you know it's not like he was a lowly accountant you know, crunching some numbers and all of a sudden this kid's skinning the cat, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That would have definitely been a red flag. You know, they're like-minded enough to where he probably saw that as an opportunity for him to cultivate a relationship. Like this is a chance for us to connect. Yeah, and there was like a common ground there. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, we have the same interest, you know. Science. (laughs) Science. Um, It's not science at all. (laughs) It's really not going to be science. Although I guess in the end, it kind of was a little science-y, but in a really terrible way. There was definitely an element of trial and error involved. (laughs) As so much science is. One of the things that aligns him and Jeffrey is they both did a lot better in their lives when they had structure. Lionel himself talked about how he yearned for, and these were his words, complete predictability for rigid structure. And one of the few times for Jeffrey when he actually does well in his life and doesn't screw up too much, except he's kicked out for alcoholism, but is in the army. He actually does pretty well for a while. Yeah, he did. the, The rigidity and structure of the army, it took all the choices away from him. Right. We remember that too from Armin Mivis was that same exact way where exactly. he, when he was in the military, he actually did pretty well. Mm-hmm. People, sometimes people just need a little more structure. <laughs> Maybe a journal or a, a day planner. <laughs> that or, would be great. Or like prison cell. So they had a lot in common. And 
when, by the time Lionel became a father, he had married a woman to whom he was massively unsuited. He was a very reserved, introverted person. He had a temper the way that Joyce had a temper, but it took a lot longer for it to come out of him. Yeah. And she became quite the expert, I'm sure, at finding every little button that he had. And he probably did the same to her to a degree. He did feel a sense of responsibility to Joyce and to, you know, try to take care of her. But his way of taking care of her couldn't meet her needs. And in the end, they kind of became quite abusive towards each other. I think his idea of what taking care of her looked like, for me anyway, how I viewed this was Mm -hmm. in more of a provider sense yeah he gave her the house after he was all you know through school and he material things yes he had you know he had gotten a good job it was all about you know just he was a their house was really nice it was that jeffrey grew up and you know he didn't they had a ton of land and there was you know they didn't really want for anything they, they weren't impoverished but she was impoverished in the sense of emotional connection with her husband there wasn't any love there it didn't seem like it or if there was I shouldn't say that there wasn't but if there was it wasn't shown in a sense of like what you might think husband and wife love should look like yeah so it was definitely- they weren't the kind of folks who had each other's back right no if anything they were always just completely on opposite ends like the primary antagonists in each other's oh lives. yeah it was like literally two people who should never have procreated or gotten married twice and they did it two different times that's the crazy (laughs) part clearly there was something there at some point but the two of them were so ill-suited to one another that i could not figure out how they met i know i didn't find that either and i looked for it i looked Um, i looked and i was like how in the world did these two people meet (laughs) well do recall i know i'm gonna say i'm gonna go back to to this word but remember that that Lionel has a voracious oh, appetite. It's been echoing in my mind ever since you said so that. So sorry. Yeah. So I, it's horrifying to me. I only ever read it once, and I had, but I—that's apparently what Joyce told one of her neighbors. So, if that's true, they could have had um, an early physical connection that would account for the very specific timing of Jeffrey. Of Jeffrey, of young Jeffrey. Yes. Um, yes. And there are. This is a, a, not, a not uncommon dynamic where a couple really gels physically with each other but in every other way they're missuited and then they mistake that initial lust connection with actual deeper emotional connection and then you realize that there's really nothing there right (laughs) yeah but that's that's my kind of understanding of of how they got there but that makes sense doesn't it it's just like Nothing else makes sense. No, there's really no, how, like, where do you like shoehorn that into other than that, mm-hmm. what you just said? It could just be that simple. The word incessant comes up a lot when talking about the family arguing that it was just- this incessant voracious appetite for sex. <laughs> incessant voracious arguing and sex time. <laughs> in there, <laughs> I'm so sorry. God, I'm not, why'd sorry. you do, are you mad at me tonight? <laughs> no, 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 never. <laughs> I think it's important to say, though, the combination of Lionel and Joyce, she had said that initially her father had badgered her into marrying him. And that was about as much as I could find out as in terms of like how the whole marriage actually got jump started. But they were married August 24th of 1959. That marriage lasted on paper anyway. And in the house, it lasted 
just shy of 19 years. Oh my God. It was a really long fucking time. This was something, this was something that was so prevalent in this era where parents viewed staying together, even if they were completely miserable, they Mm -hmm. viewed staying together better than going their separate ways for the children. In this case, I do not think that that worked. They had separate rooms around 1966 or 1968, like we'll just call it the later 60s. They never agreed on anything in the house. Jeffrey actually recalled the tension was so thick in the house that you could cut it with a knife. It was just a horrible way to live. What a horrible way. for a child, you can feel that, like the amount of unsettledness and uncertainty that creates in young children is you can't underestimate the damage that does. Right. On just like a constant level of that. uh Uh-huh, yeah. I mean, and even if it's like a low key tension, it's always there. Like maybe you have a good day here, maybe you have a bad day there. It's always going to be around you. He he said that he would uh, hear his mom and dad shouting at each other. He always remembers her being really, really emotional. And the way his dad dealt with her emotion is he would walk out of the room. Oh, wow. So Joyce was always kind of left like on this like super like just completely like, you know her nerves like her skin was practically inside out and mm-hmm. and you know Lionel just walks out calm you know and she's never left with any kind of closure and any kind of argument. no resolution nothing nothing yeah. and so that's kind of what he witnessed as a kid growing up you know he obviously never blamed his parents for anything but you can kind of start to see how some of this might start affecting a young developing mind <laughs> When he would witness this, like his method of coping was he would just go out and start slapping trees with sticks, which is kind of a weird thing to do, but it was definitely like some kind of, you know, there was a physical outlet outlet for him that was starting to occur. And he described his parents' marriage as being depressing and unnerving. Jeez, what a fun description. So I actually found a really good quote that talks about Lionel and Joyce and kind of their relationship. And it goes like this. Lionel analyzed, pondered, and judged. Joyce recognized truth only through feeling, and no amount of reasoned argument could dislodge her from convictions immediately reached. Both were, in different ways, self-centered people. Lionel devoted to his career and his study, with a tendency not to notice emotional fragility. Joyce dedicated to impinging her needs upon the world and having account taken of them. One could hardly imagine a finer recipe for incompatibility. <laughs> Says it all right there. Isn't it? <laughs> all right. Shall we go into Jeffrey? Yeah, I think we should. Let's just talk about little Jeffrey and all the things that have happened in his little Jeffrey life. So a lot of like unfortunate physical things early in his childhood, first of all. like yeah. So he's born to Joyce. In his very early weeks, he's not able. She doesn't. She's not able to breastfeed him to whatever degree that does or does not affect him. He is born with like a slight malformation in his legs, and he has to wear a correctional cast on his legs from birth to four months. So his first experience in life is being immobilized from the waist down. I also read that at another very young age. He fell and skinned his hands and got a cut on his chin when his head hit the floor. So possible TBI, mm. a traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. Possible at a few weeks, a few weeks to months old. I couldn't get the exact how old he was when this happened, but 
that is a very bad time even to get a mild bump even at like two or three years old you've got a lot more skull to work with yeah but when they're that young we're talking like everything's still real squishy at that point (laughs) um at around age three he got an ear infection and had mild pneumonia and he took him a little while to recover from that the big thing for him happened physically with his body and and this marks a time where his parents, Lionel particularly, I'm not sure Joyce would have noticed, but Lionel particularly said in retrospect that he changed permanently after this Mm -hmm. and was a much quieter and more subdued child. Yeah. Now, gentlemen, just take a deep breath. He got a double hernia in his scrotum, which is just as painful as it sounds. It's agonizing situation and it needs to be surgically repaired. Yeah. He was just in agonizing pain. And little four-year-old Jeffrey was convinced that the doctors were going to cut off his penis. Yes. He was absolutely convinced of this. To a point of being obsessed over that. That's exactly right. These are Lionel's words. He was very subdued, and I can still see him now, all hunched over like a little old man with his robe and complaining about hurting very much. And he wondered if he'd had his penis cut off and it affected him. Yeah, you think, Lionel? And this is from an article. When he recovered from the anesthetic, all he would be aware of was intense pain in his groin. 27 years later, he told one of the interviewing doctors that the pain was so great, he thought his genitals must have been cut off. Indeed, that is precisely how it would feel, and one wonders how much was explained to him. Apparently, he asked his mother if he still had his private parts, although we do not know what she replied. In her diary, she noted that Jeff was so good in hospital, but he really disliked the doctor after this ordeal. Joyce spent as much time as she could with him. At night, he would say to her, you can go home now, mommy, I'll sleep. The pain lasted for about a week. He never forgot it. One may well wonder, in view of the boy's later disturbance and the florid nature of its manifestation, whether this operation was perhaps disproportionately significant in his life. The deep cut in a sensitive area, the exploration of his inside, the feeling that foreign hands were invading his privacy would all find uncomfortable echoes at a later date. For a very long time, this would be the most intimate event of his life. So after the operation, Jeffrey seemed very subdued. Lytle stated that during the recovery, which was very slow, Jeffrey would sit in complete silence in the living room for long periods, hardly moving. This was suddenly a very miserable little boy, and it seemed like a lot of things changed for him in terms of trust. Before the hernia, he was described from what I could tell as just a regular kid. He was like mm-hmm. a regular little boy, just sort of, you know how little boys are. They bounce off the walls and they get dirty mm-hmm. and then they hurt themselves and then they're mm-hmm. fine or whatever. But it was after this surgery, he totally changed. Mm-hmm. It was like a 180. He went from being this boisterous little kid to being just like this melancholy introvert. Yeah, very subdued. Mm-hmm. It's such an interesting change and it's yeah. such a developmental time too. You have to sort of wonder if having such heavy anesthesia at the time has any kind of effect. We still kind of have to think at least a little bit about all of the drugs that Joyce had been given while he was in utero. Like maybe there was just a little like chemical imbalance that nobody had any clue existed. When somebody changes so dramatically and drastically at such a young age, and I find it more than just coincidental. 
that yeah, I it, too. that it was at that exact moment. But yeah, who am I? Well, we don't know much, but this is what we know. So he's at this point, he's four. He's very interested in animals and insects. He had a great love for his pets. His and you might be like, oh god, he's got pets. But wait, it ends well. So you can just unclench whatever you're clenching. <laughs> He had quite a few childhood pets, little ones, big ones. He had a dog that he loved, that he was very attentive and kind to. His uh, mother noted that he handled animals very gently, very carefully and lovingly. He also began a collection of insects that he found. Just little bugs, little buggy, buggy bugs, no big deal. His first little foray into his little dead thing collection. collection well it also like a lot of kids collect bugs it's not an unusual thing for a kid to do especially nope. a kid who may be inclined to be a little sciencey mm-hmm. they want to see how these things work at the end of the day it's not really any different it's really not but it is at this it is but at it, this point it's except not except for that it is so far i don't think it's too weird it's gonna get weird though it, it's gonna get uh, real weird yeah yeah and in a in a section that I have called Chicken Tonight in my notes, <laughs> there's a story about when he's about, this is a little bit of a jump ahead, but when he's about 10 years old, they've been having chicken for dinner and they were eating together. And Jeff asked his dad what would happen if he were to take the chicken bones that were left over and put them in bleach. Lionel thinks, oh, this is a very fantastic scientific curiosity. Oh my God, he's to- my son. My son, I feel this great parental pride. I want to encourage this behavior. Yes. And he does that. So they get a pan, they bleach the bones. Jeff watches. Jeffrey kind of, you know, shows him, encourages his initiative. And, and Jeffrey's about 10 years old at that point. So, you know, there we, we kind of move on with, with our exploration. But yeah. before that happens, we've got little six-year-old Jeffrey. And one of the key moments, this this story always reminds me of the moment in Richard Ramirez's life where he comes back into the apartment, the apartment after Miguel shoots his wife in the face. Not Richard's wife, but Miguel's wife. And everything's very sort of like slow and yeah. like this golden light coming in and like little dust motes are floating in the air and like time seems to stop. And, yeah. and it's just this very important moment in his life. And... Lionel thinks that he ha- he can identify a similar moment in Jeffrey's life where they have this huge crawl space under their house. It's kind of built on a, on a hill, so it's got stilts to kind of make it flat. And under there, there's a lot of space. And every so often, Lionel will go under there and pull out like dead carcasses of stuff that die, you know, crawl under the house to die as things are wont to do. Yes. So he pulls it out and there's all these like bones, like dry, quite dry bones. And they were in this bucket that Lionel had collected them in. And Jeffrey was just picking them up and dropping them and picking them up and dropping them over and over again, saying they sound like fiddlesticks. And he was absolutely, Lionel used the word, entranced by this sound and by these these bones clanking and clanking together in the bucket. And he just kept doing it again and again. It was just this look of complete absorption on his face. And for Jeffrey that's like one of the few moments he can look back at and be like that was legit creepy yeah and it was such a defining moment Mm -hmm. it's interesting that you bring that up because in true fashion of them being polar opposites um, Joyce said that she never had any knowledge of that experience for Jeffrey until it was discussed like after the trial she said that she never knew about that 
Really? Yeah. Which I, I thought was really interesting. She seems to draw a blank on a lot of different things in that way. Just, it's hard to know how aware she was of the world. I don't you know, think like, she was that. I don't. I think she was just so checked out with all the different drugs and, you know, mm-hmm. the pills and the whatnot. You know, I mean, yeah, you probably were pretty loopy at that, that point. Increased like as she got older and Jeffrey got older and things got worse with Lionel. She just took more drugs. It got to the point where she was like hypersaturated with them. Jeffrey remembers her being sort of very absent, very checked out a lot of the time. Yeah. Although he had, he does have a lot of lovely memories of her, and she definitely had lovely memories of him. Like they had times where they were like playing happy families. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the rest of the time. Whew. As Jeffrey got older and he sought solitude more and more to just be alone with himself and alone with his thoughts, he would start kind of roaming the neighborhood. First, kind of roaming his own property and the area sort of immediately around that because they had quite a large sort of forested property. It was about a little over two acres, I think. It was a little woods in it. Yeah, it was significant. You had enough space around you. You weren't immediately right on top of your neighbors. There was like privacy, but there's also this, you know, there were woods and, you know, natural things happen in woods. Creatures die. So first we started there, but then, you know, humans die. And humans too. (laughs) They really do. Later on, Um, they will. Then he kind of explored from there. So once he started to to get a little bit of confidence about exploring his own neighborhood, then rather than just exploring on foot, he would explore on his bike. Uh And he would take a plastic bag with him or a bucket with him. When he found a dead creature, he would scrape it up. He would take it somewhere private into the woods or under the crawl space where he could take it apart. He would... Uh, open it up. He had, uh, you know, a little knife. He would open it up, look inside, take things out, move them around. And I think it's worth noting at this point, what happens when you repeatedly handle dead animal insides? Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that happens is you get desensitized to the gross factor. As humans, we're like naturally going to want to avoid things that smell like decaying corpses. Like there's just... That's why Wizard it's grains. gross. You don't play That's why with it's it. gross. That's right. That's right. That's why, you know, we have, our, when it hits our olfactory system, we are designed to go, oh my God, that's something really bad going on there. Like that's designed to really gross us out so that we won't eat it and make ourselves horribly sick. Exactly. So he was getting over it. He was getting over cutting into things. Yeah. He was getting over decomposition and like you know the slip of decay and the sights of maggots and all the horrible things that go along with decaying bodies he's just kind of getting past it and I don't think you can discount how important that desensitization is to what he is able to do to living people later I think it's also really important to clarify that he did not kill these animals no, he did not. These, he was not interested in killing animals. When you were d- describing how he was on his bike and he would just go cruise around with either his little baggie or his bucket or whatever the mm-hmm. case was, he was looking for things that were already dead. He didn't want to kill the animals. No. He was just curious. How they were arranged internally. Exactly. That's a very important thing because when people talk about the evil of Jeffrey Dahmer, mm-hmm. you have to remember that even when he killed people, the killing was not the point at all. No. And in fact, he liked that part the least. And he because he was out on his own he had many opportunities to kill creatures if he wanted to kill them i think he had a very morbid curiosity and mm-hmm. i do think though that after the first one that that mm-hmm. right there should have been an enormous red flag yeah. right there 
I mean, you're, if your kid's going out cruising around on his bike with his little bucket or a bag repeatedly and bringing back various stages of decomposing animals, that's that's something you should probably take a look at. Like, even though yeah. I know you're sciencey and, you know, you might think like, oh, it's, you know, natural for him to be curious. That's, I'm going to say it, that's not normal. As we go on, Jeffrey is becoming more of an adolescent. He is starting to find that when he gets to about the age of 14 or 15, his thoughts are really, he's starting to develop his sexual mind is starting Mm -hmm. to develop. And he's noticing that sex and violence go together for him. In his house, it was not an environment Nobody likes to talk to their parents about this stuff. Like, nobody. I don't know one person who's like, hey, you know what, mom and dad, let's talk about this. But in this house, it was especially awkward. His thoughts were toward sex. They were towards violence. Everything that he had revolving around in his head was nothing that he could share with anybody. No. And he understood that from a pretty He was darn very young aware age. of that. And so his answer to get through his life at this point was he turned to heavy alcohol use. And he's very young at this point. Like he, he remembers drinking a little bit at like 13, but when he really started to mature and those thoughts started to enter his head with in terms of like the sexuality, he really remembers having to numb those thoughts with the alcohol. And so that's what he does. And I think it's really important to note that alcoholism ran heavy on Joyce's side of the family. And then if you look at her too, with her pill usage and all of the medications that she was taking, it's almost as though like just the addictive personality is ever present. Mm-hmm. But of course, like, you know, it's like nobody's talking about this, right? Like nobody's sharing any of this information. Had this no, just sh- not even like the, the, the language or the vocabulary of like the therapy language that we now have. Yeah. That's part of our, our like everyday discourse when we talk about things like, oh, unpacking these feelings or, you know, let's process this. Like people didn't talk like that. They didn't even <laughs> have these words to work with. But it's true, though. It's like if you look at that situation versus like a conversation that would happen today, it is good that we have these crazy terminologies that we use now because it helps us to understand before like there was no understanding of this and I mean when you're 15 like how do you even begin to understand any of this anyways but when he was about 15 he had a he remembers a very specific fantasy that involves picking up a hitchhiker and when he picked up this hitchhiker in his fantasy his fantasy included holding the person it was always a male because he knew from an early age that he was gay He was going to hold this guy hostage and dominate him. His words, dominate. The dominate comes up again and again. He doesn't say rape. He doesn't say... It's always domination. 100% control. But in this fantasy that he had of picking up the hitchhiker, there wasn't anything in it that involved murder. I mean, it was definitely, you know, it was a little violent in the sense of, you know, he's going to hold the person hostage or he's, you know, going to dominate them. Hold him down. Yeah, but it didn't involve murder. He remembers that very, very clearly. At 16, he happened to notice a jogger who, I guess there was like a trail that was really close to the house. Mm -hmm. He notices this jogger and it's a male that he found very, very attractive. In his mind, he starts kind of developing these fantasies, and one day he decides that he is going to hide in his bushes, 
right out there with a bat because he wanted to hit the jogger to knock him out so that he could just lay with him. He wanted to possess this man. Again, this wasn't a murder fantasy. This was a fantasy about taking somebody hostage and by keeping them for himself and being able to do with this person what he wanted to do. And it took out any kind of choice for the person. It was always about him having the final say in how something worked out. There was like the domination and now it's becoming a, a power and control trip for him. And so that's when that's he's such 16. An part. He's 16 so at this point. Young to have that. And he's also at this point drinking like a fish because he knows that these thoughts are not acceptable and not necessarily like the fantasy part, but but the the physical um, altercation with these people. Now, the, that jogger was actually pretty lucky because the day that he decided to go and hide out and wait for the guy, he was prepared to do it. He was going to do it. That guy didn't show up. So it was just sheer dumb luck that the guy, whether he got sick or, you know, had a PTA meeting or whatever the case was, <laughs> that he just didn't go for his jog that day. Jeffrey Dahmer never tried that approach again because it didn't end up panning out for him which I, I just can't even believe how lucky that guy was. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Seriously. Yeah. That's that first little foray into people, you know, and even though he didn't do it, the willingness that's there is one step further. Well, he took the step by showing up with the bat that he would have used. Like, had that guy come along, like, he was, he was, he probably would have accidentally killed him because yeah. he didn't know what he was doing. There's a million different ways that could have gone. So at this point, though, I think it's important to say that he knew that he was homosexual. His parents were not the people that you come out to. They're and really not. There's a, a thing where your parents might have a little bit of a hard time processing it, but they'll accept you. They'll be like, oh, oh, you know what? You're my kid. I love you anyway. Cool. Like, let's meet the person you're into. Lionel, on the other hand, was not that father. Joyce He's not going to be that dead. Joyce, I'm not really certain, given her later career path, which we'll get into. Hmm. But Lionel was not that person. There was a interview that he did with his son after Jeffrey Dahmer was in prison, and it was an interview with Stone Phillips. I I had to rewatch this several times because I'm like, did I fucking hear him say that right? So mm -hmm. please, listener, note this is not my view or Sally's view or anybody else on this mm. podcast's view, but this is, mm. I'm repeating what was said. His dad was extremely conservative anything other than a heterosexual normal quote-unquote normal son was not something that he was willing to accept his view on homosexuality when he had asked about whether or not he would have been accepting of Jeffrey Dahmer coming out to him he replied with just a flat-out no it was like he didn't miss a beat he didn't stop to think he was just like nope absolutely certain <laughs> Uh, Stone Phillips had asked him, do you believe that um, it's a sin that your son is gay? And he said, and I quote, if you believe the inspired word of God, which I do, that is a sin. Being gay is repugnant to God. Well, thanks, Lionel, for that. I didn't realize that he was God's mouthpiece on the, on the subject, but... Apparently he is. <laughs> evidently, That's he knows a lot about what God thinks there. And Jeffrey Dahmer absolutely knew that his father thought this way. Exactly. He could never reveal himself. No, he could never be authentic. And if Lionel's all, you know, oh, I wish he'd come and talk to me. 
What would he have said that you would have listened to? I mean, he was open in saying that he would have tried to have gotten Jeffrey some help right. regarding his his homosexual choices. Right. Uh, that's all in air quotes, by the way. I don't believe that for a freaking second. No. But he was he he would have put him in one of those like pray the gay away exactly that are just horrible and totally traumatized people. In that same interview, he did say something to that effect. I'll paraphrase it a little bit, but essentially, it was he would have sent him away to try to change his thinking. Is essentially what. The quote was again just kind of reinforces for Jeffrey Dahmer that there's no way that what he's thinking is going to be acceptable to anybody at all. So he does the natural thing and he just represses everything and he he shoves it down deep and it only stays there for so long because what happens next as we move on and we know some of the characteristics that are starting to show themselves in Jeffrey Dahmer's adolescence, as he moves into adulthood, it's important to remember that his parents were still married. So he's dealing with his own feelings, his own awareness that his lifestyle would never be accepted by his father. Also dealing with the tension in the house. Somewhere in the background is his brother, David. He's not mentioned very often, and it's also important to know that he ended up, after everything had happened with Jeffrey Dahmer, changing his name. And mm -hmm. he sort of lives anonymously. I really wanted to find him, but I was like, if you've gone that far and this is what your life is, I'm not going to push it. But I have this horrible curiosity. At this point, as he's moving toward adulthood, when I say adulthood, I mean like 17, 18-ish, mm -hmm. right? So his parents' marriage is really devolving at this point. As I said before, they'd been sleeping in separate beds in separate rooms. His mother, there were rumors that she had had an affair. She renounced that. She said that that never happened. She vividly remembers, according to her, sitting the family in a circle formation and telling the kids the marriage had become intolerable and that they couldn't live together any longer. Her description of the way David responded to this was, who's gonna adopt me? Who's gonna be my new parent? Jeffrey, on the other hand, had no reaction to this whatsoever. Didn't say a word. And she said that that night, she doesn't remember even seeing him again after that. Like he just kind of like disappeared and that was it. He didn't cope with this news. And he's 17 at this point? I think he was, he maybe was a little bit younger than that because okay. the divorce was finalized when he was about 18. Jeffrey Dahmer's parents went their separate ways. Mm -hmm. Lionel moved out of the family house. There were reports that he said that he had been traveling, but he had been living in a motel that was a few miles away from the place that Jeffrey grew up. And Joyce stayed for a little while, but then had been advised apparently by her attorney to vacate. And so when she left, she left to Chippewa Falls, which is where her mother lived. That's in um, Wisconsin. And so she left to go and be with her family. And the way Jeffrey describes this later on is exactly in those words. She left to be with her family. Exactly like I.e. not me. I.e. not me. I am not her family. According to her, she begged Jeffrey to come. According to him, he just stayed behind. She said that she bawled her eyes out the whole drive, that she was just, you know, upset. She'd gotten custody of David, and so she took off and she left him. She knew that Jeffrey was going to be going to, hopefully going to college soon and had his life ahead of him in that way, and so she didn't want to push it too much. So she left. All of a sudden, here's Jeffrey Dahmer. For the first time in his life, there's no fighting in the house. There's 
no tension left, and there's also very little furniture left. So he <laughs> was taking most of it. Quite literally alone in an almost empty house that was extremely big for one person. Suddenly silent. Very, very silent. Jeffrey is now alone with his thoughts, alone with his alcoholism, and he starts really thinking about these fantasies. He graduates high school in June of 1978. He had just graduated. He was driving back from a mall, apparently, when he sees a hitchhiker named Stephen Hicks, and he goes back to this fantasy that he had been having for so many years. And if you listen to him talk about this, he says right there square in the interview that he wishes that he would have just kept driving. Yeah. But that's not what happened. Kind of the start of everything. This is the beginning of the end, really. And so he picks up Stephen Hicks, the, you know, promise that he's going to take him to wherever he needs to go. But first, they're going to stop at the house and have, a, you know, a few brewskis, which they do. And when Stephen wants to take off to go to the concert that he was supposed to meet some friends at is when Jeffrey Dahmer then bludgeons him, strangles him, and dismembers him. And that's his first kill. That's his first kill. And it was unplanned. He, it was completely it was unplanned. Un it wasn't something that he was looking that day to go do. Mm -hmm. He just, it just happened. It's with a, like the bar that you use for like a small dumbbell. It's that mm -hmm. that kind of bar. Yeah. And then he, he bludgeons Stephen with that and then he uses the same bar to press against his throat until he's strangled. Well, strangled, essentially. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So after, though, after this murder with Stephen Hicks, Jeffrey Dahmer sort of, um, I guess, tried to revert to somewhat of a normal life. He briefly enrolled in the Ohio State University. Didn't last long. It was literally from like 1978 to 1978. <laughs> so it was right, exactly. No time was whatsoever. Several months. Um, and so he basically flunked out because of going back to the alcohol alcoholism, which is really escalating at this point. Like now he's by himself and there is nobody to tell him that he can not do this. He ends up joining the U.S. Army and that's around December of 1978. He did do pretty well. He was a combat medic in West Germany, although I don't think he ever saw combat. That was no. technically what he would have been, though. Mm -hmm. So... To stop a little bit right there with the idea that he's a medic, right? He's already got this fascination with anatomy. He's already killed one person and dismembered the body. That's setting the bar pretty high for your next murder when you dismember your first person. You don't really know what you're doing. You know, you do it anyway. But he's got all that experience under his belt from taking with all, animals apart. Right. So he does kind of know. I guess he does kind of know what he's doing. At this point, he serves for several years is discharged in 1981. I have read both honorably and dishonorably, so I do not know which of those is true. But this is 1981. Either which way, a large part of his discharge had to do with the alcoholism, which kind of lends itself to dishonorable, but I don't, again, I don't have that as a, like a hardcore fact. I read somewhere that it was technically an honorable discharge, but with like contributing factors of substance abuse and alcoholism, something like yeah, that. It, yeah, which m would make sense. And so while he was there, though, while he was in Germany serving in the army, there were several soldiers who claimed later on that he had repeatedly raped them, dominated and they, them. They didn't sound like they were making it up. 
No, it was like full-blown PTSD. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. they came out, they said that this is what happened and it, that it was constant. Like it was like, like daily. They woke up, they were going to get raped by Jeffrey Dahmer. He didn't take a break. And they couldn't tell at the anybody. time there was such a taboo. Even now there's a taboo and it's many, many, many years later. Yeah, it, it was, but it was a certainly a, a much different time in, in the military with the don't ask, don't tell. You couldn't, you know, because then they were worried that they were going to be looked at as gay. And then I, I don't even know if this was a time when they would accept anybody who is gay. Into no, I don't. Think I so. don't think that they did at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still listed in the DSM as a sexual deviation. Yeah, like so, it's top of the list at this point, and that's how far back in time we are at this point. It's like, 1981. Yeah, 1980, 40, 40. Um, 40 years. Yeah, let's not. years in the past. <laughs> um, <laughs> sometimes it feels that way when I get up in the morning. At this point, though, you know, to go back, I can't emphasize it enough to where these soldiers that he was sexually assaulting really also had to kind of gut it out and internalize all of the things that were happening to them. And I don't know if they knew that anybody else was, you know, or if they just thought that they were the targeted individuals. There's something that needs to be thought about with that is that these people also really had to just live with this for so, so long. So this was really like outside of the murder of Stephen Hicks, this was the first time, you know, that there was really like some major bad behavior happening. So after he was discharged from the army, they said, hey, man, you know what? Here's a plane ticket. You can choose anywhere in the United States that you want to go. And where did he choose? Florida. (laughs) So he goes to Miami He chose Florida, though, because it's warm. And remember, you know, he's been in Ohio and, you know, the rest of the family's like in Wisconsin and all of it. And so, yeah. That's also why um, Ted Bundy chose Florida. Because it was warm. (sighs) Also because it was the polar opposite of where the the Pacific Northwest was. But he was also like, I was just so tired of being cold all the time and I just wanted to be warm. (laughs) God. Jeez, get a heater. Wear a sweater. Seriously, he did. Ted Bundy wore many turtlenecks. So anyway, uh, while he was in Florida, it didn't last long. He wasn't there for very long. He did briefly work at some little sandwich shop. I think it was called like Sunshine Sandwiches or it was like some kitschy weird name like that. Mm -hmm. The money that he made from this job, he essentially drank it away. And so... On the hatch. Yeah, he didn't really have money to be staying in like a motel or certainly not getting an apartment. And so he spent many a night on the Florida beaches. And so um, ultimately what he ended up doing is he, when he kind of realized that it was game over for him, he just conceded and he called his dad and said, hey, can I have some money? To which his dad said, you may not have any money, but I will send you a plane ticket home. So that's what he did. I think it's also really important. This was also the time that Adam Walsh was murdered. And he was a little six-year-old Adam Walsh, um, son of John Walsh, America's most wanted, who's done some pretty amazing things with his life. But um, he was he was killed uh, right around this time. And there had initially been some people who thought that Jeffrey Dahmer was responsible for Adam Walsh's death. It was later proved, though, that he he wasn't. And that was somebody else. At this point, he heads home. Lionel, at this point, is like, I've had it with you and your shit and you're going to you're going to go live with my mom because grandma Dahmer is apparently a force to be reckoned with. So she's not going to screw around. She's not going to mess around. And so he goes and he starts living with his grandmother. He's in the basement. Yeah. He's he's 
something. Um, <laughs> this grandmother of his was the only person in his family that he was ever really outwardly affectionate with. So mm-hmm. he he did love his grandmother and he did respect her, but not enough to not kill people in her basement. No, not that much. I think it's important to list out the victims. Like I said before, it's such a long list, 17 names and many various ways of murder. His known victims, Jeffrey Dahmer's known victims, began in 1978 with Stephen Hicks. In November of 1987 was Stephen Tuomi. In January of 1988 was James Doxitar, who was only 14. His fourth victim was March of 1988, and that victim's name was Richard Guerrero. He was 22. His fifth victim was Anthony Sears, who he killed on March 25th of 1989. At this point, he had actually moved out of his grandmother's house and into the apartment, the notorious apartment of 924 North 25th Street. He moved into that apartment on May 14th of 1990. And in this apartment, his typical MO was to drug the victim and then strangle and dismember them. For some people, he kept them for a few days so that he could continue to rape the body before he dismembered them. He also kept in this apartment a 57-gallon drum that he used to dissolve the torsos and other large parts of the body. And once he did that, he would flush them down the toilet. He kept a collection of skulls for an altar that he was creating and pieces of some of the victims for consumption. The victims who he killed in that apartment were May of 1990, Raymond Smith, who was 32. At this point, he decided to buy a Polaroid camera because he wanted to begin to document the events. His seventh victim was June of 1990. That was Edward Smith, who was 27. And Jeffrey Dahmer was actually previously acquainted with him. His eighth victim was September 2nd of 1990, and his name was Ernest Miller. His ninth victim was David Thomas, who was killed on September 24th of 1990. His 10th victim was Curtis Strotter, who was 17. He killed him in February of 1991. April of 1991, Errol Lindsay, who was 19, was killed by Jeffrey Dahmer and was the first victim to have a hole drilled into his skull and was injected with hydrochloric acid. On May 24th, he killed Tony Hughes, who was 31. His 13th victim was Conorac Synthesim Foam, who was just 14. He injected hydrochloric acid into the skull of Conorac Synthesin Phone, and he actually ended up escaping when Jeffrey was on a beer run. He was later returned to Jeffrey Dahmer by the police, and when he went back into the apartment, was given a second fatal injection of the same hydrochloric acid. June 30th of 1991, he killed Matt Turner, who was 20. On July 5th of 1991, he killed Jeremiah Weinberger, who was 23, He also drilled into the skull of Jeremiah, but injected him with boiling water. On July 15th of 1991, he killed Oliver Lacey, who is 24. On July 19th of 1991, he killed Joseph Brandehoff, who is 25. And Joseph Brandehoff was also a father of two. His final attempted victim was Tracy Edwards, who is actually the person who ended up escaping from Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment and later... Mm -hmm found some cops he flagged down and he was able to get them to go back to Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment and that is when it was game over for young Jeffrey Dahmer. This takes us to the first murder murder, although it's still an accident from his point of view. Yes, it is. Because he doesn't remember doing it. 
So at this point, Jeffrey Dahmer has started to learn a little about the the gay scene in West Allis, which is where he's living. He learns about the local bars and clubs and things. And so he would go out and he would find a partner who he found attractive. He would take them to a, like a bathhouse. He would he was starting to get better at doing things like using drugs to sedate them so he could do what he wanted to them. He ended up getting booted from a couple of clubs and bathhouses permanently yeah. for doing this. He kind of got a reputation, but he picks up this guy and his name is Stephen Tuomi. And he says to him, hey, I've got a room back at the Ambassador Hotel. And he takes him back to the Ambassador Hotel and he gives him his special drink that has these, he's kind of worked out. He needs about five of these sleeping pills that he's got to sedate the people that he's with. He gives this to Stephen Tuomi. They're drinking a huge amount, so drunk, that he blacks out. Yeah. He wakes up the next day, and he's lying in bed with dead Stephen Tuomi. Yes. And Stephen Tuomi's head is kind of hanging off of the bed. He's got blood coming out of his mouth. He's got crushed ribs. He's bruised all around his neck and his throat. It looks like his, his chest has been beaten in. And Jeffrey Dahmer's got contusions all over his own hands and upper arm and, and sort of forearms. And he has zero memory yeah. of anything that led to this and zero memory of doing it. But he knows he did. Yeah. Yeah. No, He's completely horrified. Completely horrified. Not so much so that he doesn't handle it. No, this is the thing. He talks about how horrified and petrified and how terrible and awful and how ter traumatizing it was. But he just goes about his business. He so got... goes down the road to the mall. Yeah. And he gets uh, the biggest suitcase that he can on wheels, takes it back to the hotel, folds up Stephen, puts him in, zips it shut. And then late at, late at night when it's all quiet in the hotel, he kind of rolls that thing down to the elevator, rolls it downstairs, rolls it out, and the cab driver into whose trunk he puts it actually helps him lift it up and put it in the trunk. Yes, he does. What do you have in here, pal? A body? A bowling ball collection? Why does it weigh 170 pounds? <laughs> so it's interesting, though, that um, during, like, the, the time in between these two murders, between Stephen Hicks and Stephen Tuomi, was nine years such a long time. He had I mean, a cooling off period. Years. Pardon? He had quite a cooling off period. Quite a cooling off period. And I think he was so horrified by the first one. I, the first one was just so spur of the moment. Yeah. It didn't, wasn't zero planning. And I think he was just trying to get as far away from that mindset as he could. Yeah. The military absolutely helped. You know, he talked about it being, you know, if the allegations are rape or true, then they didn't help at all. He says that he didn't commit any murders during that point or even do any of the like anatomical exploration stuff that with animals that he had been really into because the physical opportunities to do these things just didn't present there. themselves. Yeah. Didn't mean the urges weren't there. It meant that the uh, opportunities were not there. He also said that after Stephen Tuomi, who was his second victim, that the compulsion became too much and that he could not stop. So the giant gap in between the two where he cooled off a little bit and went about his business and, you know, he had gotten a couple of arrests under his belt for different things, which I'm going to talk about here in a minute. 
according to him, he didn't murder. And I don't, I really do believe that that is true because he's been so open about all the other mm-hmm. things. And what would it have mattered anyway? I mean, he was already, right. like, he was 17. already in What's life, 18? in prison for life by the time it was all said and done. I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit because the list of the victims is so long and mm-hmm. it will take a million years to get through all of it if I try. From 1978 to 1991, 17 young men and boys were killed by Jeffrey Dahmer. Of these victims, 12 were killed in his North 25th Street apartment. Three further victims were murdered and dismembered at his grandmother's West Allis residence, with his first and second victims being murdered at his parents' home in Ohio and the Ambassador Hotel in Milwaukee, respectively. Mm-hmm. So a total of 14 of his victims were from various ethnic minority backgrounds. There was a lot of talk about him being a racist, but Mm. his victim choice didn't really seem to have a specific color to it. It was, there were people who were- No, it was more about quality than color. There were people who were white. There were people who mm -hmm. were black. There were people who were Hispanic and several other races in there. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't really about a race thing for him. He had a type that he would look at and if he saw something that he liked, that's how he determined his victim. It wasn't like how, you know, Ted Bundy had the woman with Parted the... in the hair, yes. long dark hair, exactly. attractive, top of her game. This is just somebody who, if they struck his fancy, then mm-hmm. that was going to be the person who he was going to murder. And he talked about physical beauty. Yes. Like the body type, like a body type, the slender well-built body type, young, smooth, youthful, but very attractive was the most important aspect for him. It was so everything. Race was, race was not important. Yeah. It was, it, it's just someone had to be extremely attractive. He kind of prized that above anything else. Yes. Most of his victims were killed by strangulation after being drugged, like what you were talking about. His first victim, we said, was killed by a combination of bludgeoning and strangulation, but everybody else pretty much met their same fate with strangulation. In 1991, though, one of the most important things that he became well-known for was the drilling of holes into the skulls of his victims. And that started in 1991, and he did that to about three of his victims that they found Mm -hmm. that had those holes that were eventually drilled into the skull. With all of that being said, it's really important to remember that there was five arrests. That's right. So many brushes with the law. There were I mean, so the first many. one, it's helpful to remember that the very first brush with the law where he could have absolutely could have gotten found out and we would not even be having this conversation right now mm-hmm. was when he killed Stephen Hicks, that very first one at his house where he bangs him over the back of the head yep. with the the um, the weightlifting bar. Yep. That was nineteen seventy eight. And he's and he puts the parts of Stephen Hicks in garbage bags and he doesn't quite know what to do with them. And so a couple of weeks after the murder, he's like, Okay, I need to get rid of this. I'm gonna take him to the dump. They're not smelling great by now, even okay. through the garbage bag. He puts him in the back of his car. It's like 3 a.m. He's driving. He's not paying attention. He crosses the middle line Mm -hmm. and the cop lights come on behind him because they think they've got a drunk driver on their hands. And so they're like, what are you doing here, Sonny? What are those trash bags in the back? And he's like, oh, this is just some garbage. My parents are going through this divorce and I, I I don't like to be at the house. There's so much arguing going on. So it's like a little bit of truth. He's such a good liar. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I 
you know, I just thought this was just a good idea to do it just to get out of the house. And they noticed the stench coming from the bags, but they never looked inside them. So he got booked for crossing the center line. He had to pay like a $50 fine. Yeah. That was that was it though. Like so close. So body close. in the back seat. Cop looking in the in the front decomposing window. Decomposing body. Decomposing body. And he just you know, there's a lot, especially at that time, that you can get away with by being a white, blue-eyed, blonde dude. Yeah. And a lot he got away with a lot of things by looking the way he did. Yeah, he was regarded as it's I uh, the words leaving my lips right now I just feel wrong saying, but he was regarded as actually being relatively handsome. I find him absolutely distasteful, but in certain pictures of him, <laughs> I'm like, nice I, if you it. squint and you turn in a certain light, I could see it. He certainly like, had the build. It's like when um, when Job is in the closet with Kitty, and he's like, glasses on, hair down, light, no. lights off, hair up. It's still a little light coming in from another door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just, I don't, I never found the angle with Dahmer. It just didn't work for me. That was probably the most shocking early brush with the law. He had like a couple of disorderly conducts in 81 and 82. There was like an open Mm -hmm. container situation. Uh, In 1983, like at this point, he'd kind of moved out and then he moved back in with his grandma in 1983, which is important to remember. And then in 1986, he had been booked on lewd and lascivious acts and he received a year of probation. But in 1988, he assaulted a 13-year-old and he served 10 months with a work permit. So he essentially was in jail at night, but released during the day so that he could go and work at his job at the Ambrosia Chocolate Factory. Jeez. I mean, which I, and, I mean, I and feel this, like the, the it's pr- not that important of a job. Like, you're not some, like, <laughs> is it really? Not CEO. you an essential worker? <laughs> Chocolate is very important. Chocolate is, but I mean, is it really, like, is it irreplaceable? That for you, are you irreplaceable, Jeffrey Dahmer? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how he pulled that one off, but he did. Mm-hmm. And so he was on a work release thing where he just got out to go mm-hmm. to work and then came back at night, checked back in. But I say that it was important to remember that he was at his grandmother's house because there were several of his victims that he brought back there to his grandmother's house that he killed, that he dismembered, and that he disposed of. And and he did that with, with Stephen Tuomi, who he killed at the Ambassador Hotel, his number two. Mm-hmm. He took him back to his grandma's house, yep. took him in, the, in that suitcase into the basement. Handled it. I remember reading that there was a week he left in there for a yes. week before he handled it. In the suitcase, all folded up. Yeah, and Stephen Tuomi was killed in what month? That couldn't, have, that couldn't have been great smelling. I mean, you no. know, I mean, Jesus Christ. No, um, a week. That's a long time to yeah, keep a, no. a body. He lures, I think it was like a total of like three men back there. Of those men, the last one that he brought back to his grandma's house, one of the last ones, I should say, um, his grandmother heard him come in with this guy. And she was like, oh, Jeffrey, is that you? And he was like, yeah, grandma, it's totally me. And so he realized. Everything's fine. Yeah, I'm dismembering. He's like, fuck, I can't do this tonight. That guy, he actually let him go. And I believe he drove him to like the ER hospital because he had already dosed him with his cocktail of yeah, death. roofied him. Yeah. So that was, that was something that, that, I mean, that kid got away clean, you know, pretty easy considering. Uh, That's pure luck right there. Then in March of 1989, he kills Anthony Sears. So then that's when he kind of like took that little bit of a break because he was in in the jail situation. 
1989, his dad had found a box at his grandmother's house. Now, at the time, Lionel did not know what was in the box. The box was locked. Lionel, being conservative, thought that it was potentially porn. And at this point, I really don't think that Lionel had any inkling that Jeffrey was gay. And so I, he thought it was porn. He demanded that Jeffrey open this box. Like He was adamant and Jeffrey they had like this whole like tiff about it and his dad was mm-hmm. gonna take it well you know inside the box is you know a human head right so it's game you can't over. open the box you cannot dad you you may not open this box because you're mm-hmm. not gonna be happy with what you find in there so they have this whole argument over it Jeffrey's like I don't have any privacy and his dad's like open the fucking box and anyway as it turned out Jeffrey after they kind of both like settled down a little bit told his dad Hey, it's porn. And his dad didn't push the subject any further and said, okay, son, we're going to destroy it tomorrow. We're going to get rid of this, you and I together. So Jeffrey then goes and buys a bunch of porn magazines so that they can be destroyed. Smart. (laughs) It was pretty, I mean, it was a pretty good plan. One thing that's important to notice about Jeffrey Dahmer's ability to do these things to people. So things that he's doing at this point are he is tricking people into coming back to his apartment. This is apartment 213 where all this horrible stuff happens. He tricks them into coming back by telling them that he's going to pay them for him to take pictures of them or to have sexy times with them. And one of the things that he does a lot is he's very taken with this particular pose and in some of the more gory photos that you can find online if you're so inclined you can see a lot of his victims were made to pose in this way which is sort of kneeling spread eagled and then bent backwards 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 into this very improbable position with the ribs really straining hard against Mm -hmm. the chest and he was very taken with this particular pose and he often ask people who were still alive to pose in that way, then he would kill them and pose them in that way. He would eviscerate them and pose them in that way. And a lot of his photos had this. So by being able to do something that's that awful to another person, you have to be able to do something called objectification. So objectification is very simply, just as it sounds, it's the act of treating a person, sometimes an animal, as an object or a thing. Jeffrey himself talked about objectification and he, in prison, he talked about what it was like for him. And he said this, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. When you depersonalize another person and view them as just an object, an object for pleasure instead of a living, breathing human being, it seems to make it easier to do things you shouldn't do. Yeah. And objectification actually has some main aspects to it. And when you hear what they are, they ring so true for who Jeffrey Dahmer was and what he had to do in his own mind to take these people and render them to a plaything to satisfy himself. And so the first one is instrumentality, which is treating the person as a tool for your purposes. Uh, the next aspect of objectification is called denial of autonomy. So basically, if you... <laughs> You say, you don't have autonomy, I can't, you don't have the ability to speak for yourself, I speak for you. Uh Inertness means treating the person as lacking in agency or activity, and inertness was absolutely an important part of objectification for him. 
uh, fungibility, which means you, you, they could be interchangeable. Remember, he said himself, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if they were black, white, Asian, Latino. It didn't matter. They were all interchangeable. They just had to be attractive. Uh-huh. So fungibility, absolutely. Violability, so treating the person as lacking in boundary integrity. So there's nothing that I won't do. And uh, in the quote here, it says, as something that it is permissible to break up, smash, or break into. I think he can definitely have been said to have broken into many people. Ownership. This was the one of the most important parts for him was the possession aspect. And in objectification, ownership has a very strong sort of foundational part to it. Ownership can be described as treating the person as though they can be owned, bought, or sold. And for him, having them with him, even to the point of eating them, meant that they were part of him forever and he could own them in a way. Yeah. And of course, denial of subjectivity. You can't have objectification without denying somebody's subjectivity, treating them as though there's no need to be concerned about their experiences or their feelings or what it's like for them. And so in order to do these things, he had to objectify people to the degree of the posing and the reducing them to single body parts makes them further objectified. And then when they get turned from you know, a body to a dismembered head, to a skull, to a skull that's been painted and decorated, it's gone from being a person to being almost something that you could buy at a prop store. Yeah. I mean, the difference between a living human subject and this object that is an important part of the process for him. The reason that he did not want people to be conscious is that he wanted to objectify them. Like dealing with a subject, dealing with the actual person did not float Jeffrey Dahmer's boat at all. If they had a will of their own, if they had a voice of their own, it turned him off. So this is, comes back to the idea of domination, just taking them completely and making them your own. And objectification was a critical part of that process for him. He himself used the word possess them. He wanted to Mm -hmm. possess them, which I thought was such an interesting way of putting it, but just so it just summed it up so incredibly perfectly. You kind of have to understand the motive behind why all of Mm -hmm. these things happen. And I don't think it's as simple as what I have here. I think that there was a lot more going on and I think it's far, far more complicated but it's hard to ignore the abandonment aspect of Jeffrey Dahmer's life in just the emotional neglect and the abandonment of his family falling apart and how both of his parents just moved on at the same time, how he was always just sort of never really seen as a kid. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. Lionel saw certain things in his son that he identified with and those were like his proud papa moments But all the other things in Jeffrey's life were kind of glossed over almost to the point where it almost felt like he wasn't even living his own life. Like he he just sort of seemed like he was just floating through and going through the motions. And emotional abandonment is a really, it's a really tough thing because it's not necessarily a recognized mental disorder. It's a very, very real thing. It can be everything from people feeling undesired to left behind to being insecure to feeling discarded. And I think that it would be remiss of us to not at least address that those are all the things that Jeffrey Dahmer experienced. And it certainly does not excuse or justify or make it okay for any of the things that he did. 
But there's a lot more going on under the surface than what we might realize. And with with an emotional thing, when somebody feels rejected from an emotional standpoint and it feels that abandonment from from a, certainly from a parent, um, it's definitely it does it does some fucking with your brain. He just sort of adapted to being neglected. His fundamental reason for creating there at the end, especially with the people who he injected their brains with either the acid or the boiling water, he wanted to create a living zombie, if you will, because he didn't really like the murdering part, but he wanted to be able to keep the person with him eternally. He wanted to be the one who called the shots. He wanted to be in control. And it goes back to being a power and control type of killer. He wanted to be the one who decided if or when that person left. Just like with Stephen Hicks when he had to go to a concert. They had no connection other than he picked him up as a hitchhiker. Mm -hmm. But as soon as he tried to leave, well, that was a big trigger for Jeffrey Dahmer. And so denial of autonomy. Exactly. And so I think it's really important to keep in mind that there was something so much more under the surface with him that it wasn't just about the kill, because as we said before, that was his least favorite part. It was about keeping them with him forever. It's not the getting, it's the having. The possession of the person. I just thought that that was a really important point to touch on. The fact that he tried to preserve these bodies, I mean, he had bits frozen in his freezer when they finally found him. They found all this stuff that were mementos. They were like, you know, memento body, uh, like reminders of the dead. And he would talk about how the best thing that you could do is have the whole body with you. But if you couldn't have the whole body with you, the best thing that you could do is have the skeleton with you. You can have the skeleton with you, then you could have just the skull. And having as much of the person as you could have was the goal. Right. Hence the zombies. It's like, I want them all. I don't want them dead. I want them compliant. And they're most compliant when they're dead. Exactly. So that's just convenient. It's not the end. The end is not to kill them. The end is to have them be completely under his control. Which is something that he had experimented with way early on when he was still living at his grandmother's house, the compliance, he couldn't find a partner that was as compliant as he liked. And so he actually had stole a mannequin, a male mannequin out of a department store somehow. I don't know how he smuggled this mannequin out, but he did. When Funny style, just put it under your arm and walk out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All confident. This is my yeah. mannequin. It's my mannequin. I bought it. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Don't look at me like that. It's none of your business. But he brought it back to his grandmother's house and, and she was creeped out by it. She made him get rid of it. But it was his his way of having a like a, a human-esque thing that he could do whatever he wanted to with. And that mannequin's not going to go anywhere. Ultimately, that wasn't going to satisfy him. So then that's when he moved on to people. Um, and he was 100% in his words, it was sex was always the motivator. It was about the lust, it was about the sex, and it was 100 million percent about the control. And so all of the things that add up to Jeffrey Dahmer, and I don't think that we can you know, gloss over the fact that he was also predisposed to mental illness and alcoholism, going way back to his grandparents on his mother's side, um, mm. and also to the repression of his biological desires when, you know, being a homosexual man, you know, he had said about that, that in his family, that it was something to be kept hush hush, not even thought of. And so he kept it all within himself. 
So there was so lonely. So this is such a recipe for disaster, which obviously it turned into, and it all just kind of stems from loneliness, sadness, abandonment, repression, not being accepted. You know, potentially having something when he was developing, when he was in utero. There was so many things about Jeffrey Dahmer that are just beyond fascinating and so many unanswered questions. It's so interesting to me how a human mind can get to that point yeah. where this is the this is this is how you scratch your itch. <laughs> and how does the itch come about? You know, like one of the things that Lionel talks about is how did dissection become so intertwined with Jeffrey's sexuality? I don't think and that anybody has an answer to that. There's not a good answer, but I think he gets as close as I think anybody can get. And he talks about how when you are a young man or young, you know, old boy, or you're, you know, 12 to 14, I think was about the range he's talking about here. When you're that age, you do what boys that age do a lot of. What's and, that, Sally? Oh, it's masturbation, Ew, Keita. gross. I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not a, that's not shaming anybody either. That's just me being no, grossed out. By, Don't you touch yourself by words. But you know, he does touch on this idea of when things kind of got crossed, when when wires got crossed. Yeah. Lionel actually talks about the wiring, hardwired. He said he had these experiences with sort of the visceral bodies, and then at the same time, his sexuality was coming online. He was exploring, you know, being a young man, and that just the wires just got crossed. Yeah. And I, I don't know how, I don't think anyone's ever going to know exactly what happened in Jeffrey's brain with regards to both psychology and, yes, the literal wiring of his brain. Like, how did he have a brain injury? You know, what was it like in there? Who only he knows. Only he knew. Obviously, he's dead now. You gave it away. You gave away the ending. Oh my god! Oh my gosh! Nobody <laughs> knew that. So sorry. The butler. <laughs> oh my god! With a drill. So much going on. So many different parts to him. It's always amazing to me again how pathological humans can get. And I keep coming back to this idea: brains are so complicated. Human relationships are so complicated. Human development is so complicated. You know, we're each composed of millions of separate experiences. Every single day, we're bombarded with new experiences. And we think that we're like other people, but really everybody has their own experiences of the world and they process it through their emotions and their memories and, and their physicality and their traumas. And, yeah. and he did too. That's what he came up with though. And I, I agree with you. I think that you have to kind of look at Jeffrey Dahmer as like a rare, like sort of perfect storm where just yeah. things came together to create this extremely unique, unusual, destructive individual. When Tracy Edwards, his last intended victim, escaped from Jeffrey Dahmer's clutches that night in July of 1991, he had gone to the apartment on, I guess, under a, the promise of like getting $100 for what I do not know. I can take a guess, but I, I don't have proof. Sexy times. Sexy times. <laughs> I guess after he had been in the apartment, he noticed that there was some things that were afoot and Jeffrey Dahmer had tried to handcuff him. There were some things that were starting to go on that he was really uncomfortable with. And then ultimately Jeffrey Dahmer kind of told him of his plan, which included eating his heart. And so it's going to turn you right off. It's, <laughs> yeah, I'm not here for the same thing, Jeff. 
Somehow he got away from Jeffrey Dahmer. He caught him off guard. There was apparently a punch to the face and he split. He took off running and he was like, I am out of here. And so, right? Like what a crazy like escape. Like it just seems so, to me, it seems so anticlimactic. Like you, Jeffrey, you were so careful with everybody else to not let them leave. The ultimate, right? Like he leaves you and now he's going to fuck you over, which is rightly what he does. And so Tracy Edwards goes and gets some police officers who come back. Flags down a passing cop. Yes. With like one handcuff still dangling from his wrist. Right. The cops are like, well, we can't take these off of you. And he's like, I will show you where this key is. And so they go back to Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment, which of course had the, the key for the handcuff. And so while they're there, they start really noticing. They they start taking a look around and they realize that there are human skulls in the refrigerator. They realize there is meat that doesn't look like what you buy in the grocery store in the refrigerator and freezer. And there are all those Polaroids that he took after victim number six, just about. And they realize... And these are all just dissections, by the way. Yeah, like, it's various just, stages of the dismemberment. It's, right. you know, from... It's the full Monty. And there's a lot of them. They also realize that these Polaroids are in the same room that they're standing in. And so they're like, holy fucking shit. What do we have in front of us? And so they ultimately, they arrest him. And that that is how he was taken. And there was very little resistance on his part at that point. Mm -hmm. He kind of knew the gig was up. And so he was like, well, (laughs) it was me. It was me and this is my apartment. And so they took him in. And when he got to the police station he was very forthcoming with confession he didn't try and backpedal he didn't try and make up crazy excuses he knew he was caught and so he basically just said yeah well here's what I will tell you I will tell you everything can you imagine being a cop and you're like used to like the full blown interrogation here's this guy and he's just like yep yep, yep, this is how I did 1 through 17 and so that was pretty much it and uh it was in the interview he was like yeah he's like you're gonna be famous because of this essentially to the cops because the co- and the cop was like wait what are you talking about like how are you gonna make me famous well that's how just you wait so the arrest itself was relatively anticlimactic in that way you know there wasn't some big shootout it wasn't some chase it wasn't you know anything like that it was just a quite literally somebody who escaped him his worst nightmare coming true in so many ways once he is arrested and taken in you know, of course, the trial happens and because he didn't contest anything and he, you know, admitted to everything, it, it did make it easier on the families of the of the victims, which if you can say it's to his credit, at least there was that. Mm-hmm. He apologized and to what degree of sincerity, who knows? I did kind of get the feeling that he had some remorse over it because, again, we, I go, did too. we go back to the fact that he didn't really enjoy the killing part. And so I think that there was a sense of remorse to it, but I think... His pathology was too strong, and it, there was no way that he wouldn't have done what he did. No, he was the, compulsive. Is the word compulsive yeah. means you can't stop. Exactly. Um, but he he also talked a little bit in a couple of interviews about how he felt an obligation to work with the police because some of these men he didn't know who they were. He, some of them he right. didn't even know their names. Right. It was the name that that they had given him was the real name, and so he said that he felt an obligation to do whatever he could for the families. It's like, well, you could have not killed their boy in the first place. First of all, I'll tell you how you could have helped. Just like throw yourself off a bridge, Jeffrey, but he didn't. (laughs) didn't So here we are. And 
he felt like he owed it to the families to give them the closure that he could give them. So he made some effort to work with the police, look at pictures of missing people, things like that, to try to identify any people that he might have killed. What a good guy. Yeah, he's so great. During the trial, he was imprisoned in Wisconsin, and they don't have a death penalty. He was given multiple life sentences for all of his victims and ended up with the sentence of, I think it was like 957 years, if I remember correctly. When he went to prison, you know, of course, there were tons of mental health experts who were just clamoring to get their little meat hooks on Jeffrey Dahmer Mm -hmm. because this was so unprecedented, right? Like this was such a, like a horrific crime. And one to this day that I remember very, very well, like being a child of the nineties and seeing the people in the hazmat suits dragging out the the drum and, you know, all of the the articles and the headlines about that. I totally remember this. And so, you know, all of the people who wanted to get a little piece of this, there were many conflicting diagnoses about his mental health. And so I'm just going to list out what I read. It's uh, everything from obsessive, sadistic, schizophrenic, and bipolar. We have gone over it again and again that he wanted power and control and domination. He felt fear and pleasure, but he didn't kill from anger or hate. He's so complicated in this way of it's not your typical serial killer where it's like rage killing. Like like Bundy with the rage. Yeah, you know, he's very complicated, very layered with all of this. There was, of course, the substance abuse disorder. And ultimately, though, something that we didn't talk about a lot in this episode was the necrophilia. Necrophilia, of course, he definitely identified with that. And then, but the necrophilia thing, there's like a 10 tier classification for necrophilia. From what I can tell from this list, identifies with at least six of them. <laughs> so it's, he's pretty heavy on it. Uh, number one is role players, it's just people who get aroused by pretending their life partner is dead. Pretty harmless, nobody's actually dead. Um, Romantic necrophiliacs are bereaved people who remain attached to their dead lover's body. Necrophiliac fantasizers are people who fantasize about necrophilia but never actually have sex with a corpse. So that's kind I don't... Is it necrophilia if you just fantasize about it? But there is the tactile necrophiliac, which is people who are aroused by touching or stroking a corpse without engaging in intercourse. And we know from Jeffrey Dahmer that he really liked the stillness Mm-hmm. And so it was in death that he found the most still in a person. Mm-hmm. So I feel like number four, he could definitely fall into that. Fetish necrophiliacs are people who remove objects or body parts from a corpse for sexual purposes. Uh, yes, check and check. Without engaging in sexual activity, which we know he did um, in many different capacities. He did that. There's a necromutilomaniac, which is people who derive pleasure from mutilating a corpse while masturbating without engaging in intercourse. And he did that. He wasn't really the opportunistic necrophiliac. That's typically people who are like, you know, a mortician or not. Nothing against our mortician friends. but No, 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 certainly. But but somebody who has the opportunity who's near a dead body who's like, it's just you and me, kid. Let's get it on. Or he could have been a regular necrophiliac, which is people who prefer to have intercourse with the dead. Just the regular kind. Just normal. Just normal. (laughs) I love that normal is number eight. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Regular old necrophiliac. Uh, 
Number nine. Variety. <laughs> number nine is a homicidal necrophiliac, which is people who commit murder in order to have sex with the dead. And I would say that's a check. And then the, even no matter how unwilling the murder is, it's still a murder. It's still a murder, and you still did it with the dead. And then finally, we come to the merciful end of number 10, the exclusive necrophiliac, which is people who have an excessive interest in sex with the dead and cannot perform at all for living partners. That one's a little gray for me, but I feel like it's like a no-y and a yes-y aftertaste at the same time. I feel like he was definitely heading in that direction. And they're, they're all like levels of escalation. You can see him moving in his career like he gets further and further down the scale towards like the nine and the 10. Yeah, and had he not gotten caught, I think that he would have checked most of these. You know, probably not all because he's not into the romantic thing. That would imply some kind of emotional connection, which was exactly. not his jam at all. Exactly. And then he also had, you know, obviously with the, the keeping of the body parts and the wanting to consume them as a meal, you know, the cannibalism, he fell into that as well. He wanted to possess these people eternally. And he felt that the way for him to do that was for him to physically ingest the person so that he could possess them forever. He you was, are what you eat. Ew. Ew. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that caught me so off guard. I was like not ready for that at all. Um, <laughs> he was labeled as antisocial. He had conduct disorders, obviously with the criminal record. Um, he was labeled as aggressive and finally an irresponsible person. I would agree that he's very irresponsible. <laughs> he did that's not. A stupid. Show that's a stupid thing to call a serial killer. Let's just say that. Like, that's like saying they were impolite. <laughs> but the that thing of it is, killed all those people was so impolite. What's interesting that you say that is that Jeffrey Dahmer was not impolite. If anything, he was totally Midwestern polite. He was so yes sir, no sir, the handshake. He was very formal in his like greetings and yes. I think he wasn't good at informality because informality is about intimacy. He couldn't, he just couldn't do that. Yeah. Well, it's funny because as a side note to this, uh, Stone Phillips, when he interviewed uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, he had done a follow-up many years later after Jeffrey Dahmer was killed in prison. He described the way Jeffrey Dahmer shook his hand is kind of cold and dead. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you shake mm -hmm. somebody's hand and there's like no intention behind the handshake. Yeah, they don't quite know what it's for. And it's just clammy and kind of limp. But that's like what it was like. They don't know how to embrace your hand. They don't know how to take hold of it in a way that's like assertive. Right. And, and communicate something. Yeah. They're just like, I offer you my hand, you take it, you wag it up and down. That concludes our handshake. So this whole time that all this is going on, the murders, the trial, the arrest, all of it, Lionel and Joyce continue to fight anytime they're around each other. Their squabbling and inability to ever meet on any agreement is just staggering to me. It blows my mind that after everything that comes out in the trial, which... A lot came out in the trial because both of his parents learned about the details of Jeffrey Dahmer's crime from the trial. They did not know. They knew that he had killed people, but they did not know to what degree his crimes went to. On that note, Joyce had been living in California for a while at this point. She actually hadn't seen Jeffrey I think it was since like 1983. So it was a really long time. It was almost a decade that she hadn't seen her son. 
they'd talked here and there, but it wasn't, they didn't have a, much of a relationship because, you know, after the divorce, she ultimately ended up leaving and moving out to California because she didn't have anything left, she felt. You know, she's 2,000 miles away. She learned about this on the news. Yeah. She learned the way that America... The way that it. I learned it was, mm-hmm. I, I was probably learning about it around the same time as his own mother. Can you imagine? I cannot oh, imagine. She, get a, she got a call from a friend who was like, turn on the news. Yep. And she's like, what channel? And they're like, any channel. And that's when and how Joyce found out. From what I could tell, though, she didn't join in and go to the trial. I don't think that she had the means financially to go from California to Wisconsin back and forth for this because mm-hmm. she was working at a clinic like as a counselor for HIV positive population. So she was working a lot with the people who were kind of like at the end of life. At this point, remember, she's Rocky Flint. She's not Jeffrey Dahmer's mom. Not at this point, she's not, but she's going to be in a minute. People really loved her. She, she did excellent work. She was compassionate. She was kind. She was thoughtful. She was, you know, all of the things that you would want in a counselor and had earned a lot of accolades through her work and through the people that she worked with. And um, once this all came out about Jeffrey Dahmer, her support system collapsed. And she had taken several leaves of absence from work. When she came back, she was told to take down pictures of Jeffrey Dahmer because it would be really disturbing to the clients to know they were being counseled by Jeffrey Dahmer's mom. She refused to do that. And so when she came back to work after another leave of absence, all those pictures were gone. Oh, that's so sad. I understand it, but it's still sad. Absolutely. I mean, that she's expected to erase her family what a horrible situation well, to be in. The thing of it was, is she didn't get those photographs back. It's not like they were like, here, let's put these in a box for Joyce. They were just gone. Mm. And so she had nothing. And so I guess Jeffrey Dahmer's attorney had been in contact with her and he was like, you need to go into hiding. And so that's exactly what she did because once the media caught wind of the fact that Jeffrey Dahmer did have a mom, it was like all hell broke loose she had to be somehow responsible. This couldn't have happened by itself. It had to be the parents somehow. It had to be specifically the mom. Actually, she took a lot of heat on this. It was it was a bad time for her. And prior to finding out about Jeffrey Dahmer, she'd found a lump in her breast. And so she kind of knew that she had some form of cancer. Her mother had cancer. Her brother had cancer. It ran in her family. And I think her father had cancer. All of that being said, um, she doesn't attend the trial, but she does eventually come out to visit him and had like a weekly phone call. Jeffrey was a lot closer to Lionel while he was in prison. They sort of seemed to have a much deeper understanding of the other person once Jeffrey Dahmer's crimes had been exposed. Jeffrey Dahmer's father was more accepting of him being a serial killer, necrophiliac, cannibal than he was about his son being a homosexual. I cannot wrap my head around that one. He was super supportive about like all of the things that Jeffrey had done, but that's where you're going to draw the line, really? When you're Lionel, yeah. So after the trial and everything was exposed, Jeffrey and his dad, you know, like I said, had a, a deeper rapport with one another. He converted to Christianity while he was in prison. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer had always sort of grown up thinking that the theory of evolution was just the way it was like it was there wasn't a god for him necessarily it was just about you know like we come from 
the mud, and that's where we end up in the mud. So it's we're just organic creatures in that way. But while he was in prison, he found God. He was baptized. In 1994, he ended up working a detail with a man named Christopher Scarver. So on the morning of November 28th, 1994, he and Scarver were on locker room detail. And Christopher Scarver had been in prison for killing another man many years before. He actually ended up killing Jeffrey Dahmer. But that morning of November 28th, 1994, Christopher Scarver had somehow gotten a hold of like a metal pipe and he ended up attacking and beating Jeffrey Dahmer as well as the other inmate who was working this detail named Jesse Anderson. He beat Jeffrey Dahmer so badly that he was rushed to the emergency room where he later died. Now, his beating that he put on Jesse Anderson also killed Jesse Anderson. So he killed two people that morning while they were on the detail. There was a lot of conspiracy around this. A lot of people thought that maybe that this was like some kind of hit that had been put out on Jeffrey Dahmer. For the first like year or so that Jeffrey Dahmer had been in prison, he was in solitary confinement. He was not allowed to commingle with the rest of the population at all because of his crimes. He was super notorious. Like everybody knew his name and he would have had a huge target on his back. So on that particular morning, he had only been out in Gen Pop not that long at this point. And so this morning when he's working on this detail with Christopher Scarver, and Christopher Scarver decides that he's going to bludgeon Jeffrey Dahmer to death, he just sort of seemed to accept his fate. According to Scarver, when he beat Jeffrey Dahmer with this metal rod, he didn't make a sound. He just laid there didn't try to defend himself, didn't scream out, didn't call for help, nothing. Just accepted that this is what was going to happen. And the fact, though, that he didn't die right away had to be a little bit disappointing, I'm sure. But ultimately, he did end up dying. It was later on that day. Massive head trauma. So some of the theories that, that existed out there were that the prison guards really hated Jeffrey Dahmer for what he had done. Um, A lot of the people kind of thought that maybe Christopher Scarver had been put up to it because I guess prison jobs, it's a process and it can take a long time. Well, this didn't take a long time. It was just all of a sudden this shift happened. They were on this detail together. They'd never, ever worked together before. Christopher Scarver was well known to not like white people. And he was also really well known to not like Jeffrey Dahmer. And let's put them together. What could happen? It's a great idea. It has to have been intentional. I mean, I mean, there's no concrete proof that it was an intentional setup, but there's a lot of things that lend themselves to probability that it's a little too coincidental. Regardless, according to Christopher Scarver, when he attacked Jeffrey Dahmer, he'd had an article in his pocket of some of the crimes that had been reported about Jeffrey Dahmer, and he asked him if he had done it, and then he proceeded to beat him to death so that was the end basically the end of Jeffrey Dahmer um, happened in prison in 1994 at the hands of another inmate the the interesting part is like I said he had become baptized earlier that year and so when he when it was said that he didn't fight back um, that he was kind of accepting in a way his own murder happening that he was kind of hoping to maybe go to heaven Because he technically had not taken his own life. Because he had not committed suicide. Because he actually did want death. He wanted the death penalty, but Wisconsin didn't have it. 
after his death, his remains were cremated, and in yet another just twist to Lionel and Joyce, Jeffrey Dahmer's remains were divided between the two of them. Because they couldn't agree on who should get them. Right. Conflict to the very end, even after his death. Conflict to the very end, which went one step further. So she wanted to have Jeffrey Dahmer's brain studied. She really thought that we could learn something from his brain, that there was potentially some kind of way that we could, you know, figure out what happened. Was there like in utero? Was there whatever? Lionel contested this and they actually went to court over it. And because Jeffrey's wishes were to be cremated, they honored that. So they cremated his brain. I don't know if they divided that. That was the end, the very, very end, Mm. the very actual end of Jeffrey and all of his living parts. Yeah. I mean, and and had he survived today, he would be 61. I think it's a real tragedy that he was murdered. There could have been a lot we could have learned from him. It's so rare to catch one in the wild. Why would you get rid of it when you have it to study it? I mean, uh, these people are so rare and people like Jeffrey Dahmer are rare among a group of people who are already unusual. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they they had him and then he was willing to talk. I mean, he wasn't loving it, but he was willing to talk yeah. about his experiences and how he felt and how he got to where he got. He was very baffled by himself. You know, how I, I, I don't know this and I don't know that. And he very much issued excuses. He didn't blame his parents. In fact, he staunchly defended them. He had a perfectly fine upbringing. It wasn't their fault. He didn't blame pornography like Ted no. Bundy did. He didn't blame anything but himself. And he, he really forcibly put all the responsibility on himself. Yeah. And you might not think that's particularly admirable, but given how many people try to weasel their way out of responsibility, there's something to be said for that. I agree with you completely. And in fact, one last thing is Gerald Boyle was Dahmer's defense attorney. It was interesting because Boyle felt like Jeffrey Dahmer didn't belong in prison. He wanted him to go to the Mendota Mental Health Institute, which ironically, I believe that's where his great-grandfather had ended up with alcoholism. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. And the one, circle is now complete. <laughs> yeah. And the last little bit of trivia here is, uh, remember that Tracy Edwards, who was his last would-be victim? Mm-hmm. Um, he was actually, you know, he was hailed a hero at one point because he was the one who kind of like blew the lid off of the crimes that Jeffrey Dahmer was committing. Um <clears throat> He actually ended up, uh, his life ended up taking a very violent turn where I guess in like 2011, about 20 years after all of this happened, he helped a homeless man throw another homeless man off of a bridge in Milwaukee and that person died. Isn't that crazy? To this day, it's thought that Tracy Edwards remains homeless. He's been homeless ever since this whole thing happened. Jeffrey Dahmer. That's a hell of a story. When your childhood is filled with conflict, the ground never feels solid beneath your feet. You start to dread the moment when your parents' incessant fighting will tear your family apart. For Jeffrey Dahmer, sure enough, the worst happened. His parents divorced, and true to Jeffrey's expectations, everybody left him. The isolated 18-year-old haunted his empty family home like a ghost, now with no restrictions on his behavior. And that's when things went wrong. Jeffrey Dahmer, in the most disturbing ways, 
adapted to his circumstances. His early anatomical obsession blended with his loneliness and his sexuality, and as an adult, he explored increasingly horrible ways to make people stay with him. Dahmer would keep his victims' compliant corpses more valuable in death than in life because they now lacked any will to leave, fulfilling his fantasy of total domination. The alcohol dependency that dominated Dahmer's life from his early teens loosened his behavioral restraints, making the worst of his actions tolerable to himself. His fantasies became permanently entwined with dissection and necrophilia. Jeffrey Dahmer was a disastrous collision of influences and experiences and pathologies that arranged themselves into terrible urges in the dark vaults of his mind. We talk flippantly of the living zombies he tried to create, but the horrific ritual sheds light on the lengths to which Dahmer was willing to go to control people, to make them stay, to make them his. For all his repugnant actions, Jeffrey Dahmer was not a sadist. Every time he killed, he was sane enough to be horrified by his own actions. His urges and fantasies didn't stop after his incarceration. They simply weren't satisfied. He spoke of his time in prison. It's just a nightmare. Let's put it that way, he said. It's been a nightmare for a long time, even before I was caught. For years now, obviously, my mind has been filled with gruesome, horrible thoughts and ideas. A nightmare. <laughs>